are listening to Books Are My People, a podcast for book lovers with book news, book recommendations, and ruminations on living a literary life in Los Angeles. This is Lucky Episode 13. I am your host, Jennifer Caloyeris. I am recording on Wednesday, December 11th. Hello, everyone. How is everyone doing? Are you all holiday crazy yet? The rain has finally stopped here, and we are enjoying some lovely but chilly weather here in Los Angeles. Even my dog is cold at night here now, which is pretty unusual. She tries to crawl into bed with me. And my oldest son turns 14 next week, which is just totally blowing my mind because I feel like I was just 14. Um, And he told us today, of course, at the very last minute, that in fact he would like a birthday party this weekend. So we are going to try our best to make that happen for him. We can throw a last minute party. We've done it before. I can still remember my favorite book that I read when I was 14, which was Grendel by John Gardner. And um, if you haven't read that, or if you weren't forced to read it in high school. Um, It was a retelling of Beowulf told from the monster's point of view. And I just love the concept and the execution. And I loved sort of learning to have sympathy for the antagonist of a story. And things haven't really changed that much in my reading habits. I still do love a retelling with a fresh perspective. I am working on a new website. So hopefully that will be ready to launch in the new year. So stay tuned. And I am looking forward to my youngest son's band performance. He plays the drums and they are going to be performing Ape Man by the Kinks next week. We had a very jumbo chicken egg that we found in the chicken coop that was like size and a half bigger than all the other eggs we've received. Um, I will put a photo of it on Instagram tomorrow and I'm actually going to crack it open and see what's inside. I have a stinking suspicion it might be a double yolk. Um, At first we thought maybe another chicken started laying eggs because this one was so much bigger than the rest, but no, I think it's just Estelle because my husband said that um, the day she laid the big egg, she was limping a little bit, poor thing. Um, But now she is back to her normal, smaller sized eggs. And I just wanted to give everyone a little warning that I won't be having an official episode in two weeks because mama needs a little vacation, but um, there will be a bonus something, some sort of bonus podcast. So be on the lookout for that. I don't quite know what it is going to entail, but um, it will be something to listen to. And now it's time for some bookish news. More and more libraries are getting rid of those pesky late fees. We have all been there. I definitely acquired a lot of them when my kids were little because someone would be sick and we wouldn't make it to the library on time. Um, And then once in a while, we would somehow lose a book. I don't quite know how that would happen, but it just did. It's sort of like losing a sock in the dryer. It just happens. When libraries stick to the late fee protocol, Patrons cards are eventually suspended, and a lot of people really rely on library books, including students. So the San Diego Public Library System is one of a growing number of libraries around the country removing late fees from their rules, as well as clearing patrons of uh, any debt they've incurred. So the changes were enacted after a city study revealed that 
Nearly half of the library's patrons, whose accounts were blocked as a result of late fees, lived in two of the city's poorest neighborhoods. They decided to ditch overdue fees after finding that the penalties drive away the people who stand to benefit the most from free library resources. So from San Francisco to Chicago to Boston, uh, public libraries that have analyzed these effects found that it's really a form of social inequality. And the libraries have found that when they lift the debt, patrons actually come back with their missing material. Chicago saw a 240% increase in the return of materials within three weeks of implementing its fine-free policy. I am proud to be living in California, where we have an excellent prison library system. Our state spends $350,000 on recreational books for prisoners, which is absolutely amazing. But according to Mother Jones, other states are ratcheting up restrictions on materials that come to prison libraries. So why is this happening? Uh, Some people are blaming books on an increase in drug smuggling. I guess this is something I did not know, but some people soak book pages with synthetic marijuana. Huh, who knew? And then there is the issue of what information gets blocked. So for example, Florida blocks 20,000 book titles. Texas blocks 10,000 book titles that they claim could stir up disorder. And some people see all of this book blocking really as our country's largest book ban. And some of these titles are pretty seemingly benign. Um, For example, uh, Texas prisons ban the book Where's Waldo? And the banning of books is definitely nothing new, but other countries tend to take such a different approach when it comes to prisoners and their relationship to books. For example, some prisons in Brazil and in Italy allow people to shave three or four days off of their sentence for each book that they finish. The most common request in prison when it comes to books is for dictionaries. They're in such high demand, in fact, that some prisoners were collecting them to use them as contraband so they could trade them for other things. Most prisons prohibit hardcovers since they can conceal knives or other contraband. And I found all this very interesting. I have a book swap each year in March and... Uh, This year, I am going to be donating my books to a local prison. If they will take them, I will need to remove all of my Where's Waldo books first. Now, on to the books. So everyone and their mother are compiling best of 2019 book lists. There are just hundreds of them online, and I figured you'd all get enough of that from the interweb. So instead... I am starting a new end-of-the-year tradition here on Books Are My People, and we are going to go slowly back in time, back to the future style, year by year, to the best books of years past, starting this year with 2018. So maybe I will insert some time travel music here. 2018 was an excellent year for books better than 2019, in my humble opinion. I am going to start with my favorite read of 2018, which was The Immortalists by Chloe Benjamin. 
I definitely told everyone who would listen to read this book, and I gifted it many, many, many times. Um, There are so many things that I loved about this book, but I especially loved the structure in terms of how it related to the telling of the book. I always tell my writing students, don't pick a random structure for your novel or short story, but pick one that actually aids in the telling of your story. Um, And as you will see in a minute, I think Chloe Benjamin's structure does absolutely that. So the story starts with the four gold siblings who live in New York. They're just kids and you get to see their dynamic as siblings. There's Varia, she's the oldest at 13. Daniel is 11, Clara is nine, and seven-year-old Simon. And they are just four siblings running wild around New York City. The kids hear about a woman on Hester Street who can predict the exact date you will die. So they all go to visit her, and one by one, each sibling is told their death date in private. The whole experience completely unnerves them, and no one wants to talk about it. No one shares their date, and it's as though they want to pretend that the whole thing just never happened. Nine years later... When their father dies unexpectedly, the siblings talk about the moment um, that happened all those years ago, and they decide to share their dates with one another. So here is where the structure comes into play, because the rest of the book is dedicated to each of the four siblings. So each sibling gets their own section that plays out chronologically in terms of which sibling dies first. Simon, who's the youngest, really takes his death date to heart. And knowing his death date is sooner than everyone else's, he uses that as a justification for leaving home and moving to San Francisco. Clara becomes fascinated with magic and moves to Las Vegas. And the two older siblings end up staying in New York to care for their mother. Daniel becomes a military doctor and Varia becomes a scientist who studies how to prolong life, which really that interest stems from this whole experience on Hester Street. The unraveling of their stories is done so beautifully and really makes you think, if you were given your date of death, what different choices would you make? Would it motivate you to make changes or to say things to people that are left unsaid? Or maybe it would cripple you with fear and stasis. What I loved about this book is each of the four siblings deals with these questions very differently. Uh, This is one of those books that's really stuck with me, and I do think about it often. And again, that is The Immortalists by Chloe Benjamin. My next pick is definitely a dark comedy. I pride myself on being a good book matchmaker, but I definitely gifted this particular book to the wrong person last year, so so sorry to my friend, and um, I will make it up to you this year. Um, but this book is called My Sister, the Serial Killer by Oyinkin Brathwaite. And this is a book about two sisters, Karide and Ayola, who live in Lagos, Nigeria. And just a very quick aside, I have a thing for Nigerian authors. I just love their storytelling. I find it so inventive and creative. Um, And maybe I will need to do a show exclusively on Nigerian authors because I have just loved so many books coming out of there. Koride is the responsible older sister. She is the head nurse at the local hospital. And Ayola is the younger, beautiful sister. 
and she exists by following her instinct. Uh, Karede is kind of led by her head, and Aeola is led by her heart. And this is no good because she has this little habit of killing her boyfriends when she breaks up with them, and then leaving her older sister to clean up the mess, both literally and figuratively. She is literally on the floor soaking up blood with a towel, so you have to be able to stomach a bit of blood to get through this one. But the trouble really begins when Coride, the older sister, is in love with a doctor at the hospital, Dr. Tade. And he is handsome and smart, and he's searching for a wife. But instead of noticing Coride, he, of course, notices her sister when she comes into work one day. Coride uh, is horrified when Aeola and Tade begin dating because she knows exactly where this is going. Karide, in spite of the circumstances that her sister puts her in, still manages to remain loyal to her sister to a fault. But to keep sane, she just has to get some of this off her chest. So she begins to confess to a man in the hospital who's in a coma, and she tells him everything that her sister has done and what part she's played in all of this. And to her, it ends up feeling like uh, going to confession. She's getting it all off her chest because she can't really talk to anyone else about this. And it feels really good. But one day, the man in the coma wakes up and he begins to remember little by little what his nurse has been telling him. This book is dark with sharp writing and it is also laugh out loud funny in ways that feel incredibly fresh. And again, that is My Sister, the Serial Killer by Oyinkin Brathwaite. Next up is A Ladder to the Sky by John Boyne. John Boyne is the author of many books, um, but the ones you may have heard of are The Heart's Invisible Furies, which I've gifted but never actually read, but I hear great things. And also um, his other really popular book is The Boy in the Striped Pajamas, which is a beautiful middle grade novel about a concentration camp in Nazi Germany. And my own middle grade son read this last year and said it was very sad, but he really enjoyed it. So A Ladder to the Sky is about a man named Maurice Swift, who wants more than anything to be a great writer of his time. That's his biggest ambition. He has himself broken into the literary scene when he published his debut novel called Two Germans. And he tells everyone that it was based on some real life stories about his sugar daddy, a man named Eric Ackerman. The story has an interesting framework. It starts with Eric Ackerman's account of his relationship with Maurice when they were living in Berlin. And Ackerman himself is also a famous novelist, someone Maurice at the time aspired to be like. And Swift ends up doing a sort of takedown of Ackerman's character in his own novel. He reinvents him as a villain and profits for sure from stealing his stories and spinning them into his own, which he publishes in the form of his first book. We hear from other of Swift's victims throughout the text, people he's stolen stories from, and Gore Vidal even makes an appearance. Uh, there's a lot of comedy. I'm not, I feel like I'm not doing it justice in terms of the comedy, but that all comes out in the subtlety of the writing. And uh, Swift is definitely an unreliable narrator, which makes for some 
very good reading material. I happen to love an unreliable narrator. I know that's not for everyone. Um, and you never know how much you can lean on him for the truth in the story. And again, that is A Ladder to the Sky by John Boyne. My next pick is The Great Believers by Rebecca Mackay. And she is the author of Music for Wartime and The Hundred-Year-Old House, both of which I have read and enjoyed. So this is a book told in alternating chapters about a group of friends, mostly gay men, in Chicago in the mid-80s. And the alternating chapters weave together the story of a woman who has gone to Paris much later in 2015 in search of her estranged daughter. This book, and this is not a spoiler, chronicles the AIDS epidemic in Chicago. I think a lot of material has been written about AIDS in New York and in San Francisco, but this is one of the first novels that looks at the history up to the present day, uh, implications and ramifications of the disease in Chicago specifically. The reader is taken back to a time where whole friend groups are living in a constant state of morbidity, awaiting test results or discovering first symptoms of a disease that was just being discovered. One of the main characters is Yale Tishman. He works for Northwestern University at an art gallery on campus, and he lives with a man named Charlie Keene, who is a publisher at a gay newspaper. This is a novel about illness and death and the swift and random way death takes hold of people, it's a novel about loyalty and secrets. This is one of those really big novels, both in scope and emotional territory. And I was left thinking about this one for a long time after finishing it. And again, that is The Great Believers by Rebecca Mackay. So I thought this next pick would make a great addition to a book club if anyone out there happens to be looking for book club picks because there's really so much to talk about here. So this is my nonfiction pick for the week from 2018, and it is called Small Animals, Parenthood in the Age of Fear by Kim Brooks. So Kim Brooks wrote this book because in 2011, she was visiting family in Virginia. She was living in Chicago at the time. And she was heading back home on the plane and was kind of in that harried state that you're in, you know, on the morning of travel. And she needed to grab something really quickly at Target. She just needed to run in and run out. And her four-year-old son, Felix, really wanted to go with her. And she said, fine, you can come with me. He didn't want to stay at home with grandma. So she puts him in the car in her minivan and they drive to Target and it's cold out and he does not want to go in the store once they get there. He wants to stay in the car with his iPad. So she makes that two second decision to leave him in the car. She cracks the window open a bit. She sets the alarm on the car and he is very happy in his car seat with his iPad and she runs into Target. So I realize that that circumstance can be very triggering for some people which is why this makes such a good book club pick. So just so you know, Felix was fine. Um, however, someone in the parking lot noticed him in the car alone and decided to videotape him in the car and handed the video over to the police. So unbeknownst to Kim, she finishes her quick errand um, and she's back in the car and on her way to the airport without incident or any knowledge of 
what happened in the parking lot. She had no idea that someone else had videotaped her son. So they get on the airplane, they fly back to Chicago, and her husband lets her know that the police back in Virginia were looking for her and are seeking to charge her with contributing to the delinquency of a minor. She finds this out back in Chicago. So this story of what happened to her becomes a launching pad for a discussion throughout the rest of the book on parenting and childhood freedom. It asks questions about what happens to kids when we helicopter parent them. What happens when kids aren't allowed to walk to the store alone or play outside with their neighborhood friends unsupervised? Uh, Brooks talks about how driving with a child in a car is so much more dangerous than leaving a kid alone in the car and cites the statistic that a child's chances of being abducted and murdered are way less than one in a million. She interviews experts as well as other mothers who have faced arrest for infractions similar to hers. There are more complexities to the story, to her particular story, and what happens to her in terms of consequences, but I don't want to spoil any of that here, so you'll have to read the book to find out what happens. Uh, It's a look at our fear-based culture and how that ends up affecting everyone. And again, I really like this book as a pick for book club. There's so much to talk about and lots of personal examples that parents could offer from their own lives. And it's definitely something that I am grappling with here living in Los Angeles, which is probably one of the worst walking cities. Um, I do feel lucky that my kids have some neighborhood friends that are walking distance. um, And this summer they were able to walk to their own summer camp. Um, So that was fun, but those opportunities are few and far between. So I need to do a better job about finding more opportunities to have them become more independent. And again, that is Small Animals, Parenthood in the Age of Fear by Kim Brooks. And that is it. That is a wrap on my favorite books from 2018. And that is a wrap on book recommendations for the 2019 year. You can find me on Instagram at Jennifer Caloieris. That is where I am most active on social media these days. And I will be back in two weeks, not with a regular book recommendation episode, but hopefully with some sort of bonus content. And then we will resume regular book recommendations on January 13th, 2020. As always, all of the books are listed in the show notes section of the podcast, or you can visit booksaremypeople.com. Have a wonderfully bookish week and happy holidays, everyone. I hope you get lots and lots of books for presents.